We are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, beginning in verse 22. And I want to kind of set this up by sharing, you know, when I was in elementary school, uh, one thing I, I disliked about PE class and recess was the picking of teams. And uh, are we okay? <laughs> it was the picking of teams. And, and the reason I, I disliked it wasn't because I didn't have some sort of athletic bone in me. I played baseball to about fourth grade, and that was the year, at least when I was a kid, when your peers started throwing the ball at you, and they were pitching, and so it was like a 50-50 chance you're going to get walked or hit, and so I thought, well, that, I don't want to stand there and let a hard object be thrown at me, so that's not a fun game. Uh, I played basketball until I was about sixth grade, but then, you know, being a bigger kid, I didn't have the ball handling skills as others, and so eventually found my niche in football in eighth grade, and, and football is good because when you're a bigger kid and you get picked on, and then they put you in pads and tell you to hit people. You got a lot of built-up aggression. And so you can really lay them out. And, uh, and so I enjoyed football. But I, I did not enjoy the picking of teams in PE and recess because I was typically picked last, um, being a bigger kid. And um, you, you never want to be picked last. You also don't want to be picked on the team that's probably going to lose. And you don't want the pick to begin, if you ever heard this, well, I guess I'll take. That's not a compliment, right? I guess I'll take Mike. Um, I didn't mind uh, being picked last when we played soccer, though, because soccer, there wasn't a whole lot of running going on, and I typically would be sitting in the goal uh, as the goalie, and so I didn't have to run around a whole lot, and I just kind of watched the game and enjoyed the sunshine. But I bring this idea of picking teams is because this morning our focus is choosing your side or choose your side, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22 and running through verse uh, 32 this morning. And then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he, being Jesus, healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he, again Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his, will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunders goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age of, to come. As you can see in our passage, there are many difficult sayings that Jesus lays out uh, for us to understand. A lot of these passages have been misinterpreted and, and changed or used in ways that aren't accurate according to what Scripture is telling us. First thing we should notice, though, is jumping back to verse 22, is a miracle has taken place. But if you notice in the passage, the miracle doesn't really receive a whole lot of recognition. This particular story can be found in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke as well. And Mark doesn't even mention that there was a miracle, just that Jesus had been doing miracles. And so the miracle is not the emphasis, but what Jesus teaches. We don't even know who brought the blind and mute man to Jesus. Again, that's not the emphasis of the passage. 
What Jesus is wanting to teach us and what we have to understand is there are two sides to be chosen. The two sides are revealed by the people's response and the Pharisees' response to the miracle and who Jesus is. And so in choosing sides, it begins with this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Not who does your spouse, not who does your parents or your aunts, your uncles, your guardians. Who do you say Jesus is? Not who the world tries to define who Jesus Christ is or should be or what he should look like or, or what he actually did. Who do you say Jesus is as, re, as given to us through the scriptures? This is, in fact, what's being done in verse 22 and 23, or 23 and 24. The people witnessed this miracle. Look in verse 23. And they asked the question, can this be the son of David? The question is coming from their amazement and their astonishment of what has taken place right before their eyes, what they've just witnessed. It's pointing to the people are trying to figure out who, in fact, Jesus Christ is or Jesus is. Could he possibly be the long-awaited Messiah? Could he be the Christ? Could he be the Savior? This is what the title Son of David is pointing to. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Their question is, could it be, is it even possible that this is the one we've been waiting for? The title, Son of David, is taken from the promise given to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's in that chapter where God comes to David and tells him that his, his throne will be established forever. But at this point in history in the Gospels, the kingdom of Israel has fallen apart because they've rebelled against God. We can read of that in the Old Testament. There is no king on the throne. The nation of Israel is not a kingdom. But the people, the Jewish people, were always looking back to this Davidic covenant. That's what it's referred to. Waiting and hoping for the day when it would be reestablished again, when the royal line would appear once again. The problem is they didn't fully understand the prophecy. See, they're hoping for a king that might show up and who would overthrow the Roman Empire. He would establish the kingdom of Israel in its prominent day with King David and King Solomon. In the book of Isaiah in chapter 9 and chapter 11, in Hosea chapter 3 verse 5, in Amos chapter 9 verse 11, all of these are prophecies pointing to the son of David and the return of David's royal line. Son of David not only speaks of royalty, but speaks of the one who would come and shepherd and lead God's people. You should also note when Jesus is giving this teaching, he refers to himself as the Son of Man in verse 32. This is Jesus' favorite title that he uses about himself. The phrase is taken from a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. It equates the Son of Man with the Ancient of Days, in which the Son of Man shall be given everlasting dominion. It's a title to speak of authority and uniqueness, but also suffering. So here we have the people trying to figure out, is this the Messiah? They're trying to figure out, answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? And the Pharisees hear their question, they're pondering, and they then flip the script. They're saying that Jesus can only do what he does, only do the miracles he does and the healings he does because he's empowered, he's infused with Beelzebub. Beelzebub is synonymous with Satan. It's described as the ruler of demons. It literally means lord of the flies, meaning lord of the dead. 
So here's what's happening in verse 24. The Pharisees, they also witnessed the miracle, so they could not deny the miraculous power that Jesus had. They could not deny it because the people saw it as well, but they had to explain it. And so their hardened hearts would be able to comprehend what is happening. Instead of believing Jesus to be the Son of God, instead of believing that the power of God was coming out of him, they rationalized that he was a sorcerer. That was a judgment worthy of the penalty of death in Jewish traditions. They rationalized that it was the power of Satan, in fact, working through him and allowing Jesus to do what he was doing. Pharisees were another group. They had witnessed these miracles. But here's the thing. They were unwilling to confess that Jesus was the Messiah. They were unwilling to confess he was the Christ and the Son of David. According to Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, this is not the first time the Pharisees accused Jesus of being powered by Beelzebub. So in choosing sides, Jesus points out in verses 25 and 26 and also verse 28 that we must choose which kingdom we are going to stand for. In these three verses, verse 25, 26, and 28, the word kingdom is used three times. It's the emphasis. There is a kingdom of God, and there is a kingdom of Satan. And we have to make the choice which one we are going to live for. Verses 25 through 28, Jesus is revealing how we can understand who to choose. Verse 25 says, knowing their thoughts, which implies that Jesus wasn't necessarily in the conversation. He may have been an earshot away, but he knew their thoughts because he was God in the flesh. He says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. Verse 26, and if Satan... Cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. Then how will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the power of the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What Jesus is doing in these verses is he's revealing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees' statement. The hypocrisy that they stated concerning the kingdom of God and, and God's, God's kingdom and God's power over Satan's. The first statement of verse 25 is a strong warning for all who would read it. He says, any kingdom, every kingdom, or government, or nation, which is divided against itself is heading to destruction. That's what laid waste means. It means it is doomed to fail. Credible warnings, we look out into our own nation and we see what's happening on the news. If you follow the news and you see when the government makes a decision or the Supreme Court comes to a decision, social media blows up and people just argue and they blast each other from the opposite sides. They don't want to listen to one another, they don't want to find a common ground. And Jesus says, if our nation continues to go down this path, it is doomed for destruction. Say this because this is why, as believers, we have to pray for our nation. We have to pray for the politicians we don't agree with and the ones we do. We have to lift them up because God has placed them all in their positions. The Bible tells us that. And we look out into the nation and we need to pray for revival. I've said it before, but we can pass rules and regulations and legislations and laws, but the only thing that's going to change this nation is revival, it is awakening. 
It is people turning to God. Looking back in verse 25, Jesus takes this wide spectrum of a kingdom and then he applies it to a city or a house. We've seen this in the news the past couple of years as cities have rioted because of civil rights or nationality. And we've seen cities being burned to the ground. As believers, we have to pray for our city. We have to pray for our community, pray for our, our county. The people would turn to God. The word house there in verse 25 can also be read as family. As believers, we can take this in two ways. If a household, if a family is not united, Jesus says it will not last. And we take it the other way as believers and apply it to our church family. If a church family is not united, it will not last. This is an aspect I think many of us can relate to that Jesus is speaking of is we've seen families fall apart. We've heard of families fall apart. We've seen churches become so divisive within the walls that they eventually close their doors. It's a calling for us to pray for our families, pray for our kids, pray for our church family. Point of verse 25 is to lead to what Jesus is revealing what the Pharisees are saying about him and how it holds no legitimacy. Verse 26, 27, Jesus tells us, Why would Satan empower me to destroy him? That's his question. If Satan cast out Satan, he's dividing himself, how then will his kingdom stand? Why would Satan, who desires to kill, steal, and destroy the heart, mind, soul of an individual, empower me to free them from that? It, it does not make sense what you're saying. Then Jesus makes it a little more personal in verse 27. Jesus wasn't the only one that's casting out demons in this time. The Pharisees also had experienced individuals within their group who cast out demons. The word sons in verse 27 is speaking of the Pharisees' people, their followers, their students. Jesus is pointing out that if he is casting out by Satan's power in such an amazing way that people are being astounded and marveling, then by what power are the Pharisees casting out demons, which isn't amazing and astounding the people? This is the amazing wisdom of Christ as he flips the Pharisees' statement on its head. And the people were amazed with him to hear that they too have a, a, a question to ponder. Douglas O'Donnell points out, the idea here is that if your underlings can perform little exorcisms and no one doubts it is from God, then when Jesus performs his super exorcisms, you might believe he's playing for God's team. The Pharisee had inadvertently walked themselves in a corner. Jesus drives home the point here in verse 28, saying that if he is in fact the son of David, then it is by the Spirit of God he casts out demons, and they can know for certain who he is. As a side note in the Gospel of Luke, Luke uses the word instead of Spirit of God as the finger of God, which I think is a cool way to describe when we see God moving in our midst. Every time we see someone come to Christ, every time we see someone repent and return to Christ, we're seeing the Spirit of God, the finger of God moving, and the kingdom of God present. That's what Jesus is telling them, that his kingdom has come. The kingdom of God has come in verse 25, meaning right before their very eyes, they're able to see and witness the kingdom of God in front of them. 
and yet they weren't willing to choose to believe it. When we come to verse 29, Jesus gives a little parable to a snippet about a strong man in his house and being plundered. And to understand the parable under, uh, snippet here, we need to understand who the strong man is. And then, therefore, who's the one that is able to bind the strong, strong man? This is all flowing from what Jesus has been teaching, which came out of this healing and the response of the people and the Pharisees. The strong man there in verse 29 represents Satan. Satan has come and he has taken the possessions of this world and many of its people in their minds and their hearts. And Jesus is saying, no one can take a strong man's possessions or goods unless they are stronger than the strong man so that they are capable of overpowering him or binding him. So the binder is Jesus. It's an incredible image of the power of Jesus and God over Satan. But more importantly, it's pointing to what Jesus is going to do on the cross in his resurrection. He overpowered and he overtook Satan's right to lead people to death. And he offers forgiveness for all through his life, death, and resurrection. Because the power of the cross and because the power of the empty tomb, the strong man, Satan, is no longer allowed to plunder individuals who have come to Christ. Amen. God is for us, not against us. That's what we sing about. He protects us. He hymns us in behind and before all around us. Satan can do nothing against us because Jesus has bound the strong man. Then we come to another understanding we need in understanding why to choose. What this passage is pointing out is Satan and demons are real. Hell is real, but so is Christ. So is salvation. So is the gift of eternal life in heaven. And one day the full fruition of verse 29 is going to happen when Christ returns and takes those who belong to him home and casts Satan into the eternal abyss and restores a new heaven and a new earth. It's because Jesus reigns and stronger than any of Satan's schemes. We must listen to the words of Christ carefully in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever is not gathered with me scatters. We could read this verse like this. Whoever is not found in Christ is opposed to Christ. And therefore not a part of the kingdom of God, but rather a part of the kingdom of Satan. And the evidence is seen as who gather, and that word means to do the work of Christ, rather than to scatter or work against Christ. This statement in one of John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This rules out all other religions and ideologies of this world. They may appear to be strong, but Jesus is stronger. It also is telling us we must have a conviction. If a religion is opposed to the salvation of Christ and in Christ alone and Scripture alone, meaning the Holy Bible and alone, nothing added to it, nothing taken away from it, interpreted appropriately and correctly, if anyone is against that, then they are opposed to Christ. That's what he's saying here. If anyone is against the Word of God, they are opposed to Christ. That means if a government, a political group, a social activist group is doing things opposed to the Word and will of God, they are opposed to Christ. If they are opposed to what God has proclaimed and ordained, they are opposed to Christ. So if you're for abortion, you're opposed to Christ. 
if you're for marriages or types of relationships that God has not proclaimed and ordained, you're opposed to Christ. In this one statement in verse 30, Jesus is telling us this. There is no spiritual neutrality. You cannot hang on the fence. You cannot walk the line. You are either with me or you are against me. And if they're going to be opposed to Christ, then we have to understand they will be opposed to us because we represent Jesus Christ. And that is a very hard statement to swallow. But here's the thing. If we're here this morning and we have trusted Christ for our eternal salvation, then we have to trust him in what he says here in verse 30. This is why James was able to write by the power of the Holy Spirit, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Understanding why we choose is to understand what we believe about Jesus Christ and God and the Holy Spirit and God's word because that's going to impact our life now and what Jesus says for eternity there in verse 32. And so as we read through this, here's the final thing we have to understand. We have to understand there's, in fact, only one choice. Look in verse 31 and 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And, and I think we read that verse and we want to hit the brakes. There's a lot of preachers and a lot of commentaries I find interesting completely skip this verse. And a lot of people have misinterpreted this verse. As believers, we understand this, right? Christ died and rose again so that all sinners might be forgiven, right? And by his death and his resurrection, he has the power and authority to forgive all sins. But now, verse 31 and 32, Jesus says there's some unforgivable sin we have to worry about, right? I can we agree we don't like that. <laughs> there's some sin that's going to impact us in such a way not only in this life, which is what age means, but in the eternal life to come. There's some unforgivable, unpardonable sin that Jesus is telling us about and warning us. So to understand these two verses, what we have to do is we have to keep it in the context of what is happening in the passage. So back in verse 22, 23, and 24, one group of people and another group of people have both witnessed a miracle. They both witnessed a casting out of a demon. One group of people is amazed and astonished. Could this be the son of David? Another group wants to rationalize and say that Jesus is powered by, the, uh, by Satan. He's an agent of Satan. And so the teaching up to this point is to understand the choices both groups are making at this very moment and understanding why people choose who Jesus really is. Jesus has a kingdom which rules over all things and will eventually and ultimately destroy Satan's kingdom. And therefore, people have to choose if they are going to be side of the kingdom which is going to reign victoriously, or they're going to be opposed to it. And Jesus comes to verse 31 and 32, and he's bringing up the eternal implication of that choice. The word blasphemy means to speak against. 
The biblical context of blasphemy is to speak against the things of God. This was what they brought against Jesus. In Jewish traditions, to blaspheme God was a death sentence. And so the Pharisees eventually bring this allegation on Jesus, which led him to the cross, even though they twisted it before Pilate. So here we have Jesus. He's standing before an amazed crowd, and he's standing before an aggravated crowd, and he's offering for everyone in both crowds, for any and every sin, and every word spoken against him to be forgiven. That's the beginning of verse 31. All sins can be forgiven. Pharisee's sins, the saying Jesus was powered by Satan, can be forgiven. The people can speak against the Son of Man and still be forgiven. This means there's nothing we can do to overpower the love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God found in Jesus Christ. Nothing. Forgiveness is the theme of verse 31 and 32. But now we want to say, wait. It's mentioned twice about forgiveness, but it's also mentioned twice about not being forgiven if we speak against the Spirit. So again, the context. The Pharisees, according to Jesus in verse 28, have witnessed the Spirit of God. They've witnessed the kingdom of God through the casting out of this demon-possessed man who is mute and blind. One group is amazed. One group is wondering, is this the Christ? Another group understood there was power here. There's power coming out of this man. It's been revealed. They become aggravated and proclaim him to be an agent of Satan. And so Jesus is delivering a statement to these hard-hearted Pharisees and anyone else who might follow their teachings. If they fail to see the Spirit's mighty hand and the Spirit's mighty power, even though it's right before their eyes, then they will never find forgiveness. One definition concerning the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God. This is what Paul points to in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 30, 32. And people seeing the evidence of God, but giving credit to something else and worshiping something else. The evidence of God, according to Scripture, is all around us. But when people deny the evidence of God, they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which is unforgivable. It also be taken in terms of salvation. If you're here this morning and you hear the evidence of your sin, you hear the evidence of what Jesus Christ did in dying for your sin and rising again, you hear of the cross and the empty tomb, you hear of the purpose of Jesus Christ, and you understand it clearly. You understand you need it. You understand you need forgiveness. You understand if you don't have it, you're going to hell. But then you deliberately choose to reject it. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. There are some Christians who wonder, have I done this? Have I done the unforgivable sin? Matthew Henry writes in his commentary, those who fear they have committed this sin give a good sign that they have not. Here we find Jesus delivering a message of repentance to his adversaries. He is telling them there is an unpardonable sin which they are living out in this very moment, but he doesn't accuse them. Instead, he's trying to shine light on their hearts to soften them so they won't have to go to hell. He is telling them, now is your time to choose and recognize the work of the Holy Spirit within me. 
So though we have to choose a side, the reality is there's only fact, there's fact only one choice. To believe and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. To find the forgiveness for all of your sins. Or you can deny the work of the Spirit through the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Christ. And you can die in your sins. There is mercy and grace of God. And he gives us the ability to choose. The question is, which side are you on? Who have you chosen? The one Jesus who grants victory over sin, death, and hell, or the one whose kingdom of the, who's the kingdom of this world and can only grant death and hell? If you're here this morning, if you yet to accept Jesus Christ, I want to share with you how that can happen. It begins by admitting to God that you are a sinner. That word sin means you fall short of the mark. You don't hit the standard. What's the standard? It's holiness. It's perfection. And you miss it. I miss it. But we admit to God that we're a sinner, and then we tell God, God, I believe your word, that you sent your only son to die on the cross for my sins. They placed him in a tomb, and then he rose from the grave to show he has the power and authority over death and the power and authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life. If you're here this morning and you believe that in your heart, the final step is to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and your need for him for forgiveness. This is the time of invitation. The fetters are going to come up and lead us in a song. I'm going to be standing here. If you need to accept Jesus Christ and be given eternal life, I'm going to invite you to come. But Jesus is very clear in our passage this morning. We must choose who we will stand for, who we will work for, who we will represent. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for giving us your word, Lord. You just want to make it so clear and evident that we must stand for you and for your kingdom, and we must shine the light into this world and be the salt you call us to be. We must proclaim your name, for you have commissioned us and given us the power of the Spirit to do so. I thank you for this day. I thank you for this weekend as we're reminded of our freedom. But, Lord, we are so thankful that we have freedom in Christ. And you have made us a new creation. But, Lord, if there's someone here this morning that needs to make that a public confession, Father, I pray your Spirit would speak to their hearts and work on their hearts and let them have the courage and boldness to walk down the aisle and let it be known today. Thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for loving us and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If you need to come down, I'm going to invite you to come.